Hello and welcome to the show. It's Catherine Murphy. It's uh, about 2am after election night. We Over the next little bit, we're going to walk through what just happened. The problems facing our nation are real and they are growing. So at this election, there is a clear choice. It is a choice that will determine the economy that Australians live in, not just for the next three years, but for the next decade. We know Australia can solve these problems and friends, we can start on May the 18th. It's a choice between a government that I lead and the alternative of a Labor government led by Bill Shorten. Now is not the time to turn back. We say to our fellow Australians who want to see their wages moving again and their penalty rates restored, vote for change. I mean, we're not where we would hope to be at this time. It's, what, quarter past nine, and I hoped that we would be in a different place. And certainly the polling, the public polling at least, had us in a different place. This is not the night Labor thought it would be. Uh, I did not think there was any way Scott Morrison could win tonight. It was just a long list of seats that uh, that Labor has lost. What what went wrong? Quite frankly, the rise and rise of Bill Shorten's hit a brick wall tonight. We actually cleaned the floor of the socialists up there in central Queensland. I want to quote a former Prime Minister. His name was Paul Keating, and the quote was, this is the sweetest victory of all. I have always believed in miracles. Scott Morrison deserves his place on that Liberal Mount Rushmore now because he did this alone. And tonight we've been delivered another one. Scott Morrison has made himself into an instant Liberal hero. This is just astonishing. How good is Australia? Okay, uh, well... Here we are, 2am podcast, as is our post-election tradition at Guardian Australia. I am joined in the studio by the boss, Lenore Taylor, by the partner in crime, Sarah Martin, and by the other partner in crime, Amy Ramikas. And we are going to, over the next little bit, make sense of what's just happened over the last several hours of election 2019. So we'll divide this into manageable chunks. Let's start with what happened, Lenore. Wow, not what we were expecting to happen, not what the pollsters were expecting to happen. We need to be upfront about that from the start. Actually, the overall swing nationwide wasn't that different from what the polls were saying. But the swings, when you break them down geographically, and I suspect demographically swung uh, in hugely different ways in different places. Queensland was a disaster zone for Labor. Uh, there was, a, I think, about a 4% swing overall, but in some seats, and we need to be pretty upfront about this, particularly coal seats, the swings were enormous, like 12%, 20%. There was also a really big swing against Joel Fitzgibbon in Hunter, in Hunter. which yeah. landed with a one-nation candidate for want of anyone else for it to go to. I, you know, There was no Liberal candidate there. So in those sort of uh, coal seats, working class uh, seats where people clearly were concerned about Labor's policies on climate change. There were really big swings. 
I saw some evidence that uh, demographically there were bigger swings uh, in the older demographic, which might suggest that franking credits uh, were a problem. Uh, but the overall picture is that uh, the Morrison government has been returned, possibly with a majority in its own right. There's about eight undecided seats and they only need two to break their way to govern in their own right uh, or else uh, governing with the help of some of a raft of independents. Mm. And uh, dividend imputation, Sarah, what do you think about that as a factor in the campaign? Well, I mean, it, who would have thought that a complex policy such as ending franking credit, credits um, could become a defining election issue, but it has. And um, we know that MPs on both sides said from the very beginning of this campaign that that message was resonating um, and it was that classic, if you don't understand it, don't vote for it. If you do understand it, you wouldn't vote for it, is what the Liberals were campaigning on. And a lot of people were frightened by the scare campaign run by the Liberals on it was, that issue. It was a bit more than just if you don't understand it. It was like, we're going to actually oh, yeah. misrepresent it. The retiree tax. Retiree tax. Mm. Yeah. yeah it, 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 but because it was a complex mm change. Yeah. I think most people didn't really understand sure. the nitty gritty of it. Um, it was ripe for a scare campaign. And sadly, that scare campaign was very effective. Because mm, it wasn't it wasn't just that it was complex. It was that the Liberal message was much stronger than Labor's way of trying to counter it. So they just said it's a retiree tax. And Labor never really got around to saying, actually, no, it's not, because they would get very deep into the policy points, which is admirable. We should be talking talking about policy, but when you've got a couple of seconds in a news grab, uh, you're going to listen to the strongest message. And, and that's what both sides were telling us as this election rolled on. So why do we think this election was so difficult to call? Well, it was, I think, I guess it was hard to see where it was coming. I mean, the polls weren't as wrong as what I'm sure all the narrative is going to be. But the minor party vote is impossible to pick. And the minor party vote in particular seats was instrumental in taking away primary vote from the majors, which made it really impossible to pick which way those preferences were going to go. Because they don't tend to follow how to vote cards. We don't know which way they'll break. Sometimes it'll be to Labor. Sometimes it's to Libs. Sometimes it's to the Nats. Sometimes they end up emerging, you know, somewhere where you just were like, how on earth did that happen? And we saw that happen. So while across the nation, the primary vote for these a lot of these minor parties, and I'm talking obviously Palmer's United Australia and One Nation, isn't huge. When you break it down seat by seat, it had a pretty big impact in areas where Labor really needed to pick up that primary vote themselves. Although it should be said that um, Clive Palmer did spend $60 million for <laughs> not very much. Yeah, Although we did. do have Malcolm Roberts back. <laughs> yeah. We do, we do. <laughs> yes, it's... Um, uh, I think the national polls weren't that far off. Where they were, the, where they were really wrong was in Queensland, and it's mm. for some of the reasons that and the state breakdowns were state completely break, out. Yeah, was... Preferred prime minister turned out to be right, though. Well, um, yes, consistently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. even though the headline figures in the polls were wrong, I think most people commentating on what was going to happen did say it was a very difficult election to predict, and that it was a very patchy result across the country and it was always going to come down to a handful of seats and a handful of 
Uh, sorry, handful of votes and a handful of seats. We've been saying this yeah, for a couple have, of weeks yeah, in our yeah. office. Handful of votes, handful of seats. And, yeah. I mean, for at this stage, 2.20 or whatever it is now on Sunday morning, uh, the coalition looks like they're kind of back to where they were in 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. It's a funny road that we've walked on to walk in a big circle, basically. <laughs> I think, too, we need to think about Bill Shorten. As the Labor leader, uh, I asked two questions at the start of the campaign, whether or not voters had made peace with Shorten as the leader of the Labor Party because he was an unpopular figure uh, and whether Labor's agenda was too progressive, basically more progressive than where the electorate is. And I think the answer to the question on Shorten was that, uh, that, that Australian voters did not go for him. You know, obviously, inevitably, after an election wash-up, that is as disastrous for Labor as tonight's is, there will be a, you know, an effort to quarantine the cause mm. of the defeat to the guy who's now not the leader. But uh, that fact notwithstanding, Amy, you were on the road during the campaign. Every piece of field work we did during this campaign uh, basically brought back tales from voters of how unpopular Chilton mm. was. So what do we make of that? What do we make of that? So... I think Shorten didn't carry the message. It was uh, Labor had a sort of visionary campaign message and a non-visionary leader to uh, to sell it, and I think that mismatch was really difficult for them. And yeah, sure, everyone will be just trying to blame it on Shorten, and uh, and no one will ever really know. But I would suggest it's very hard to know how the electorate would react to a progressive agenda sold by someone who could really sell a message. And I think we also need to acknowledge that Scott Morrison, who's campaigning, felt a bit, I know it's two o'clock in the morning, felt a bit naff. How good is? How good (laughs) is, you know, how good is this? And, you know, the whole daggy dad, dad routine Actually, clearly people found it relatable. People were mm-hmm. a part of the electorate clearly warmed to that. And let's face it, he carried their whole campaign all on his lonesome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he has to get credit for campaigning in a way that people responded to. And also the one bump we saw in Bill Shorten's popularity in the polls, we want to talk about, you know, that, but also in the feel, and I'm going on just talking to people who I know could give two shits about politics, was after what happened uh, with the story about his mother and he broke in that press conference and that was probably the realest in six years anyone has actually seen Bill Shorten. But then we went back to very rehearsed Bill Shorten. I am speaking slowly because I've been told I speak too quickly, so I'm going to get these lines out to you. Whereas Scott Morrison, I mean, he didn't answer a lot of questions during this campaign. And he had a lot of lines. And he had a lot of lines and he stuck to them and he gave them in a way that you could understand it on television, in the pub, on the street, on radio and in print. And that worked. I think the problem is we know that people vote for unpopular opposition leaders. That's not necessarily a, a, a factor that will matter. But if you have then an unpopular leader and then you give a voter a reason not to vote for them, then voters will take that option. So I think that, the, as you say, the problem was you had 
a ambitious policy agenda with a, a not particularly good salesman. It wasn't a case like with Tony Abbott where you had an unpopular salesman who was targeting the other side. You know, it was is those two factors working together in a not particularly good way for the Labor Party. And what do we think about what happens next? Well, <laughs> Scott, Morin has, Scott Morrison has a huge authority within the party. You know, he's a Liberal hero. He just pulled off an election that nobody thought that they could really win. Uh, and it's not really clear what he's going to do with it mm. because he had a pretty thin policy offering. So he has all this authority and, you know, no plans. Not really very many plans. I mean, tax cuts, <laughs> personal tax cuts. Uh, and on the other side, um, there's going to be an unholy leadership stash and, and this internal questioning of were they too ambitious? Should they have gone so far on particularly climate policy? Uh, like, so a real reassessment on the Labor side. So I think, you know, it's going to be pretty interesting. Or just pick one like go hard on climate or go hard on economic reform, but maybe not do both if you're going to split the vote that way. I think what's really interesting is that there's swings to Labor in um, quite safe Liberal seats, so in Mm. in Higgins and Kuyong, so where where people feel that perhaps economically more secure and they feel like, yes, okay, now Mm. we want to take action on climate change. I think that's a really interesting dynamic to explore further, like in which seats and most likely they are the, um, you know, more economically secure seats. People feel more willing to do something about climate change as a moral obligation. Well, or, else, yeah. or else sell cl- doing things about climate change, not as a moral imperative, mm. but as something that works economically oh, and works for you as yeah. well. Mm. And, I, and I guess that's what they didn't really do mm. well enough. Um, and I don't know. I certainly would hope that they considered doing that before abandoning um, ambitious action mm. on climate change. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting uh, tonight. Obviously, I've rung around various people. Um, the the sort of views vary. Um, you know, some people think the problem. Labor people think the problem on climate change was that Shorten was too astride the stools that he didn't go hard enough on climate. Perhaps he should have gone full southern state strategy and said, no, Adani, no, we're really deeply serious. This is what we're going to do. And they would have lost Queensland but perhaps carried Victoria as sort of one rationale. I think, though, there is sort of getting to this point about Lenore's point about climate as um, through an economic lens. Um, the final column I wrote uh, for Election Day was looking at climate change through a materialist lens uh, and it was uh, the death of Bob Hawke, really, that inspired me to look at it that way um, and to try and communicate um, the risks to working people in Australia if if we do not make this transition. And political leaders haven't been game to take that debate on through that lens because that acknowledges that coal, the coal industry is finite in this country mm. and that there will be a massive economic transformation. Well, and they've been grappling that from the get-go. You know, Absolutely. Rudd yeah. put all his eggs in the carbon capture and storage basket because that was the way that you could keep having a coal industry and still be a great, you know, sort of moral leader on climate change. Mm. But they've all grappled with that and there's kind of no way around it, right? And the crazy thing is in those same central Queensland seats where there's these enormous... Uh, swings against Labor, 
there are huge renewable projects going yeah. ahead with far more jobs associated with them than would ever be created by Adani. Mm. I mean, surely you can do something with that. Mm. Mm, but it's it's the mythology, right, around sure. coal, particularly in, in Queensland. And in well, the last... Is it, is, it, is it the mythology mm. around coal? Is it, uh, you know, from our time in Townsville, Amy, it's uh, people, because unemployment is high... People are very focused on jobs, mm. employment opportunities. Notwithstanding Lenore's point about jobs in the renewables energy, uh, the renewables industry, there's just a piece of shorthand that happens because they connect employment with major resource well, projects. So. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, you know, it's just they go back to what they know mm-hmm. and for decades it was coal. And in the last three weeks of the campaign, you really saw the Liberals' messages particularly, particularly in Queensland, change from just, you know, don't vote them in to coal equals jobs and they're going to stop this. Mm-hmm. And Queensland Labor has been burning down my phone all night because they're now having a crisis of, of faith because they don't know what what to do because in the southeast they have stuck to the southern message that you know we we need to do something about the climate emergency and we need to to do something about Adani whereas in central and north and far north Queensland like we know from when we were in Townsville the MPs have been allowed to say no we support Adani and we were 100% behind opening the Galilee basin so now just at that core level you're having that fight between the southern and you know the rest of the state which is i think going to spread throughout labor because what side do they choose on this but can i can i just posit that this is not just about coal and what happened in Queensland. I mean, if we're looking at Labor failing to win any seats in outer metropolitan or mm. inner mm. city Correct. areas in Correct. any other state, mm. I mean, Karangamai yeah. and Dunkley, notionally Labor because of a redistribution, mm-hmm. possibly Chisholm because of the particular circumstances of the retiring Liberal, mm-hmm. they have then failed to win a single seat across the country mm. in WA, in South Australia, in, in Victoria, other than those two, and, and not hanging on to those seats in Tasmania. They're not coal seats. That That is a failure of message to talk to people in the outer metro areas beyond just the coal industry. And, and we do know from the final essential poll that we published in the campaign what the, what the cut-through messages were in the mm. final week of the campaign, and that was tax. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, Morrison framed the framed the conversation in the final week of the campaign when the undecideds looked up and made a decision, and we wondered all this campaign whether whether there would be a uniformity about how the undecideds would break, and it turns out that there was, and it was uh, it was against Labor. And and as we were talking about Labor and breaking for Labor and breaking uh, leadership, <laughs> what happens? What's our tips? Well, we know all we know at this stage is that Anthony Albanese, who is the favourite from the New South Wales left faction, is likely has said he will contest the position. He'll be out on what Sunday. What we don't know is if other people are going to also contest the position. And if they do, then there's the whole process that Labor has uh, for a ballot partly from grassroots members and partly from the caucus, and that takes quite a few weeks, so there won't actually be a Labor leader for a while. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's, there's... Although Parliament will be coming back, allegedly, mm. leaves Scott Morrison before June 30 because yeah, they need to get the their tax, tax cuts, cuts mm. through. So, so mm. it's there's going to be, you know, a bit of a spotlight on Labor not having a leader in the very near future. Well, and the other thing associated with, uh, with the recasting of the leadership and and this is sort of I'm not elevating this to some sort of personality uh, fixation but the, the fact of the matter is for two terms labor has been bound by 
a leadership team and by a policy program that is that has kept them together, that has been the glue that's united them. Uh, now we are going to go through a period where Labor determines who leads it into this period and and pulls apart that policy offering and then refashions it in some way. So we've been very used to Labor being a stable force in in politics over the last two terms. And now I guess the challenge for Labor will be can they maintain their stability while dealing with the reckoning of losing the unlosable election. Mm. Thanks so much for sticking with us through the whole campaign. We were really delighted with the podcast series that we put together over the course of the last several weeks. We hope we brought you some insight from all parts of the country and from using drawing on the real expertise and care and diligence of our Canberra political reporting team, of which I'm enormously proud, and also our our uh, colleagues, terrific colleagues in other parts of Guardian Australia. Thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni. If you've enjoyed the pod series over the course of the campaign, uh, never fear, onwards we go. Bit more long form, bit more of these episodes. We'll be continuing to push out these episodes every week. Remember to tell your friends to subscribe, uh, to share to leave us a rating, a review, all that stuff. We'll be back with you next week.